Welcome to this extended version of the Orthodox Ethos Podcast. Today we will be examining the phenomenon and the dogmas of the contemporary ecumenical movement, and in particular, the dogmatic heresy concerning the body of Christ, often referred to as ecumenism, from an Orthodox perspective. This podcast was originally recorded in April of 2022. Thank you for joining us, and God bless you. God bless. Welcome back. Glad you're joining us on this Orthodox Ethos Extended Podcast. Tonight we're going to be examining the ecumenical movement, in particular the phenomenon and the religious teachings found in the movement of ecumenism concerning the body of Christ, the teaching on the body of Christ, the incarnation throughout the ages. Let's go right into it, and we've got a lot to cover and a lot of questions I'm sure will be examined. You can see on the screen symbols uh, that are uh, ubiquitous now in the, uh, of course, in the ecumenical movement. And we have passed at the now 22nd year of the uh, the millennia, the, the, the new uh, century. Uh, we have passed far away from the original origins uh, and, uh, and, and intentions of those Protestants who began the ecumenical movement. We'll talk about that, but it's important to note that this is a fluid and very fast advancing uh, movement, which is spilling over into all kinds of new ideas all the time. Uh, we did a um, presentation and a, uh, we posted a, a paper on the orthodoxethos.com website uh, concerning the uh, uh, perennialism or the perennial wisdom and the school of uh, philosophy and, and, and theology and, and religious thought uh, called perennialism. Uh, and we examined that in a conference and posted that. So this is also something that you'll be interested in. There are a number of other topics, or rather other papers that we've presented over the years that touch on ecumenism. A few of them will be quoted tonight, but there's much more out there. So if you did a search, you, if you do a search and look at uh, uh, put my name and ecumenism or ecumenical movement or dogma of the church, you're going to run into a number of papers that it will be of interest to you if you want to continue on and do some more further research. Uh, and uh, we talk about especially the question of the boundaries of the church and the mysteries of the church. And we'll touch a little bit on that tonight, of course, but uh, for more uh, in-depth research, you'll, you'll want to continue on the orthodoxethos.com website. Uh, where most, if not all, of that has been posted over the over the years. So let's look at the first thing that, to remember always when we uh, approach such an important topic as which touches on our salvation and the salvation of the world. We have to be cognizant uh, as followers, as Orthodox Christians, that we are followers of the Holy Fathers, and only when one follows the Holy Fathers. Does one come to the truth of the gospel? These things are inseparable. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, you have to be a disciple of the Holy Fathers, a disciple of the saints throughout the ages who Christ has lived and worked through and spoken through again and again and again. And they're a choir of 
a harmonious choir of wisdom that God has inspired for the salvation of the world. So it is impossible to come to know the truth or to grasp theology in any other way but by following the saints, following the holy fathers of the Orthodox Church. This is a famous quote will be uh, become a standard here in our presentations uh, as we examine every every the Tuesday, examine a contemporary uh, subjects like the phenomenon of ecumenism. Now, let's begin at the beginning, and let's look just very briefly and touch on some basic aspects of the dogma of the church before we examine the ecumenism uh, as, a, as a dogmatic or, or, or outlook on the church and on, on the salvation. Remember some basics. Now, when we go back to the beginning of the church, the founding of the church, uh, we could call we could talk about different ways uh, about the church and its founding, but uh, it is certainly true to say that the church began uh, with the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And if you would just read the scriptures right there, there is a witness to the order of things that we have to follow if we can understand where Christ is and where we need to meet him in order to be saved. And it says in the first uh, verse of chapter two of the Acts of the Apostles, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, that might seem fairly straightforward and basic and almost a given, but it is no longer a given, brothers and sisters. It, it should have been and always should be for every Christian, but it is not. Because what he's, what is being said here uh, is uh, the phrase is epitofto in Greek, in one place. And that is a phrase used in patristic literature and in a way to denote the Eucharistic synaxis. So what he, we have here is two things that we that are standard and presuppositions for the presence of Christ in his church, and that is one accord, which of course means of one mind and one heart, which means the Orthodox faith. It means that we they are of one mind in Christ. They have the mind of Christ and they are together united in Christ. And of course, that means the confession of Jesus Christ and all that that entails. There's no division in unity and, and question of faith. There's no disunity here. They are one accord. And they're in one place, which is, of course, the Eucharistic synaxis. In other words, they're there around where they were holding the divine liturgy and praying and communing with God. These two things are inseparable, the Orthodox faith and the Orthodox Eucharistic synaxis. Where they exist, there is Christ and the church. When either one are missing, there is not Jesus Christ and his church the body of Christ, the Eucharist. It cannot exist apart from the Orthodox faith, and, it, and the Orthodox faith cannot exist as a way and a truth and a life outside of the Eucharistic synaxis, outside of the communion of all, uh, of one mind. So it's it, these things, you might say, well, which goes first? Well, it's the, the cart before the horse. What, which, those things are inseparable. Uh, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, of the reality of life in Christ. So, this is where we begin. These are the precepts and these are the givens that, uh, that unfortunately over the last 500 to 1,000 years in the West have been uh, unfortunately doubted or thrown into great uh, disarray in terms of understanding because they have rejected so much of the deposit of faith. And so now uh, we can talk about unity in Christ without any reference to the one faith or any reference to the Eucharist. Of course, this is just... Um, uh, you know, baseless and 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 uh, and delusional. 
this, it doesn't exist out of what's been revealed and given and passed on throughout the ages. And just quickly, one last point on this, and that is they are filled, having been in one place with one mind, one heart, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. We're going to see that from the Apostle Paul momentarily. They were, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then, of course, they began to speak. In other words, to prophesy, to teach, and to preach. See the order of things. The one faith, the one Eucharist, the one Spirit bringing forth the preaching of salvation uh, in, in Christ, and the Spirit speaking through them. And without those things, the Spirit, we have no basis to believe or understand that the Spirit is speaking through uh, someone. So it is a given from above the unity that we live and, and, and those who do not have it seek. It is not something that can be created in time. It's not a created thing. It's an uncreated reality that one enters into. Unity is a given. He gives and is given in the church. He himself, Jesus Christ, is the kingdom of God. He himself is the unity of the, of the body of Christ. He's the one in communion that keeps it all together. And of course, that's from above. It's on high, given to us. We ascend in every Eucharist to heaven. And there in the eternal now, the, the, the ever-present today of our Eucharistic uh, life, it, it, we have unity and only there. And so, uh, and through there, I should say, uh, it, it, unity is found only through Christ in the Eucharist. So it's a given. He does not say we are seeking it in any place. No one has ever said that we can seek, in other words, to find, to create, as if we, when you lose it, you cannot recreate it. You cannot uh, fashion it anew uh, between human beings. It is a given. So there is, according to St. Paul, one body, the church, the body of Christ, one spirit, the Holy Spirit, which ascended at on Pentecost. Even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. He is the uh, the unity of all the believers. So that that unity is not something that's invisible, but it's quite manifest. And it must be manifest because that is the implications and the reality of the incarnation, that he came, but he did not abandon us. He will be with us, he says, throughout the ages, right? He is present with us. Go, therefore, he says, and teach all nations. That should be make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them, having them, they've been made disciples, which is the whole process of the catechumenate, purification, baptism, death, and resurrection, communion, uniting themselves to Christ. They become disciples in that process. And then they are taught. All things, to observe all things, all the commandments. In that context, again, in that context, our life in Christ is, le is led and enjoyed and understood. These are the givens. He gives and is given in the mystery of the church and in the mysteries. It's he who is imparted. Whenever you say one person is baptized, that immediately means the church. It immediately means Christ. It, it, there's no such thing as a mystery, a sacrament outside of the mystery, the sacrament of the church. Those things are the same thing. They're the manifestation of the church. St. Nicholas Cavasla says, 
the church is known in the mysteries. So it is not possible to know the church, the body of Christ, Christ himself, outside of the mysteries. The mysteries and the church are inseparable. Anyone who speaks about one being baptized or communing outside of the of Pentecost, right? What we just said, first the faith, the Eucharistic assembly. Anybody who says, well, outside of that, there is Christ gives, gives himself and is given. Then they have confused and they've departed from the very basics here of the scriptures. It's a given, and in that context, we become disciples. In that context, we're taught. In that context, we are able to carry out all of the commandments by the grace of God. Teach them all things, he says, whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. He is with us always. The, the incarnation continues. He did not come and leave. He took us with him into heaven. And he returned again on Pentecost, and he dwells in his body, the church. It is, he is the church. He is the church. It's not that he has us or that we are the church, and but he is the church, and we are his members because the church is the body of Christ. These things are inseparable. They're, they're impossible to be understood in, in, in parts and in pieces, piecemeal. Uh, it has to be understood all together, this is the nature and the and, uh, of unity in Christ. You cannot divide these things. You cannot, you cannot uh, disintegrate them. Uh, this, uh, there's no way to uh, to be partially uh, in Christ. Uh, there's no way to be partially pregnant. Right. This is the uh, this is this phrase uh, I use to drive home the the absurdity of talking about uh, a partial communion or a partial participation. Either you're in the body of Christ, members made so by in, in the mysteries, or you are not. Now, you can be a follower of Christ. You can, be, you can strive to love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. But the actualization of membership and dying and rising is not something that you or I or any human being can, uh, can, can actualize on his own. Again, it is a given that we have to enter into. It is a revelation that we have to accept and embrace, and, and we have to submit ourselves in time and space, here and not there. Christ came in a town in Palestine, in Bethlehem, in a particular place, to a particular virgin, uh, Mary, in a, in a particular time. And that, that same incarnation and reality is true throughout the ages, that the church is here in a particular time and space. Why is it so important that the churches be built, that the altars be erected, that people attend the temple of God? If it doesn't matter, and we can relativize it and talk about partial participation and partial communion and all the rest, which is what is so predominant in the ecumenical movement today and ecumenism. And all of that is a confession on the part of the enthusiasts of ecumenism that they don't have the revelation, the given, that which is passed down. The fact that they have to seek it, the fact that they feel that they are only partially participating in it, that they have a disintegration of the reality of the incarnation means that they're confessing they don't have it. A reformation is not necessary for that which is and always is and is present. We don't need to reform anything that Christ has revealed and he has promised that he will guide and be with into the end. That's the test that this is true. That is the same Christ throughout the ages, yesterday, today, and forever. The same Christ. 
that Christ is the body of Christ, not some other Christ. People in the Western world say, I am a disciple of Christ, but not of the Orthodox Church or of the one church or the body of Christ. And that is impossible. That's not according to his revelation. That's not according to 2,000 years of church tradition. There are unfortunately many sincerely held, sincere Christians, people who are trying to follow Christ, uh, in that sense, being a Christian, because, of course, to be a Christian truly is to put him on in the mysteries, right? It, it's, to, it's to die and rise in the, in the mysteries. But there are many who seek after him. And, but they, they stumble on this particular scandal of the particular, this, this scandal of the particular, right? That it's here and not there. That is this and not that. That it's, it's in time and in a place, and you have to submit yourself to that. This is something for the rationalist that is very difficult to embrace. And they do not, like, they, they do not answer with, with as, as Peter did, where shall we go, Lord? You have the words of life. But they turn around and they say, this is a hard saying. This is a hard saying that I have to eat the body and drink the blood of the incarnate Lord, this really hands-on particular material and spiritual reality. And the rationalist and the Gnostic and the different ver versions of, of, of uh, delusion, because behind it is pride and not wanting to submit, that's, that's the com common denominator of all those who reject the incarnation, is pride and not wanting to submit their intellect and saying that my intellect cannot understand this mystery. I submit to it. Peter says, I don't, I, did, did Peter understand the mystery of the Eucharist when the Lord suddenly turned to his disciples and said, you must eat my body and drink my blood. Do you think that Peter rationally understood that his rational intellect was, was able to grasp that? Of course not. It's a mystery. But he crucified his intellect because he trusted the master. And on this particular doctrine today, we have many, many, many people who cannot do that, refuse to do that. They don't want to crucify their intellect on the hard saying that the church is here and not there. It's in time and space. It has an identity. It has a faith. It has a it is a continuation from 2,000 years and all the rest that's implied uh, in this doctrine. So in the scriptures, we have it right there. It's, 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 it's obvious, and it's a given, and it's not even, you know, of course, need to be developed. It's just obvious. He gives and he is given. Now, let's turn. It's a very, very brief. We'll come back to a lot of these themes as we go on, but very brief introduction, just to get us, you know, remind us of things we should know uh, already. Uh, if we're Orthodox Christians, we should be uh, well acquainted with this teaching. And let's talk now, what is this ecumenism? Uh, and we'll just start from the beginning with the words of those who are presenting it uh, in a positive light. And, and then we'll look at it uh, from the patristic teaching among some of the saints today who, who directly addressed the question of ecumenism. Uh, ecumenism, and these are just, there's a number of these kinds of definitions floating around online. It's very simple and easy to find, so nothing special here, but just to remind us. Uh, ecumenism is, of course, from the Greek term ecumeni, meaning the inhabited world. It's a very good term used for the ecumenical councils and the ecumenical patriarchate and all these. These are things that go back at least to the fourth century and the beginning of the uh, embrace of the Romans, uh, uh, embracing Christian church and Christ, and, uh, and then the Roman Empire eventually became becoming identified as a Christian with Theodosius in 382. And so now the whole inhabited world, that means the Ecumeni, the Roman Empire, essentially, uh, for, to a certain degree, is 
uh, is the, um, uh, the ecumenical field uh, for the church. It's the place where the church now uh, is uh, being uh, established and built up and all the rest. So this is the term goes back. And then we have the, eventually the ecumenical patriarch. It means he's the patriarch in the uh, where the throne of, uh, of uh, the Roman emperor was in Const Constantinople. And he has the term as well, which has been disputed actually by some uh, because of the implications that he is somehow over the other bishops, something that eventually the Pope will take up and make into a dogma. And, and essentially uh, through that uh, stance uh, brought about the uh, disintegration of church unity, walked away from the church uh, and, and exalting himself over the other bishops, which was an anathema to previous popes. Uh, uh, but now I'm on, on a tangent. Let's get back. Humanism came to prominence in the 20th century as a coalition of like-minded groups seeking to restore religious communion, fellowship, communion, the same thing, that had been lost with the fragmentation of the church into different groups. That's one definition, one description flowing around online. So immediately we see a different perception of the church, that they can be, that the church can be fragmented. Uh, Therefore, we're not talking at this point about the body of Christ, which is a divine human organism, of course, can never be fragmented. Um, that would be the end of it as the a divine human organism. So uh, the Lord said very clearly that the, church, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And so division of the church is impossible, only departure from the church. Division is impossible according to its nature. It's not a question of history or people. It's according to God's promises and his his revelation of what this is, this church. What is this church? It's a divine human organism. So immediately we have a heretical view, essentially. It's a departure from Christian teaching that the church can be fragmented at all is impossible. Christ cannot be fragmented. Uh, is, is Christ divided? St. Paul famously said, is Christ divided? No, of course not. So the fact that we're restoring communion that have been lost means we're talking about something other than the body of Christ. We're not... We're talking about people who walked away from the body of Christ and them seeking to be in communion with one another and and uh, also with the church. And then the, the whole question of how that comes about, which we're not going to get too much into tonight, which is a very important part of this discussion, but it's probably beyond the pale for tonight. That comes to play. But the very idea that, that we've lost communion, yet we're all in the church and the church is fragmented, that whole idea, of course, is impossible to reconcile with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Another attempt at describing, defining the ecumenical movement, it, that it's that it seeks to recover the apostolic sense of the early church for unity and diversity. Again, something's been lost, an apostolic understanding of unity and diversity, the early church's experience, and we need to recover that. Again, something that by, def by definition of what the church is, is impossible uh, if we're talking about the apostolic faith and church being in need of being restored and recovered. That's not the case. What needs to be, what needs to happen is people need to re-enter or enter and submit themselves to this reality which exists and is immutable and cannot be divided. Again, ecumenism in the movement is the movement to restore unity among the Christian churches and throughout the whole world. And so that's interesting because the second part points us now a little bit beyond the church, doesn't it? 
And I think that's where we're at now after 130, 40 years, depending on when you want to date the beginning of this modern movement, 1910, 1920, uh, probably really in the late 1800s, as you'll see. Uh, in any case, now we're moving beyond the Christian church and we're talking about the whole world being united, uh, which is the question entirely, isn't it? But we practice, by it says here, we practice this ecumenism by praying together. We'll look at that. We'll look at what does the church fathers say about praying together with those who are not in the body of Christ. Serving the community together, honestly searching for God's truth together. So it, all of these definitions point to someone, groups of people who've lost their way, who've lost the revelation or the given, uh, the unity that's a given. They've walked away from it or they've been, They've been taken away from it. They've been deceived. Well, however you want to describe it, the common perception here is that we have something, uh, we've lost something and we're trying to recover it. And that is not the case in terms of Christ. Christ is not lost. He has not lost his people. The people have not lost him. Uh, in other words, his body, his members of his body, that's impossible. Uh, but people can certainly walk away from it, and that's happened repeatedly throughout church history. Now, let's look quickly based on uh, at, the, at the modern uh, origins, the missionary origins of modern ecumenism. Uh, this is taken from a book that I've written. We'll talk about that uh, at, at the end of this little section. You can get that online or even uh, download it. I think it's for free online. It's also for sale as a book. And... Uh, uh, we're going to go quickly through the basic, real basic, uh, you know, just excerpts uh, to reorient, to orient ourselves. Where did this come from and where would it, where was it established in what context and what perspective to better understand why it is what it is and how it differs from the Orthodox Church? So it really begins in the 19th century. And the 19th century... Uh, missionary movement uh, in the Protestant world, which was phenomenal in terms of scope, right? There was a massive missionary movement in the 1800s all across the, uh, uh, the world following the, the uh, colonizers uh, of England and America and different European states. There were missionaries who would go behind and with and uh, in large measure supported by the colonialists. And they made tremendous strides in, in uh, bringing uh, their uh, confessional uh, teaching and preaching uh, to people all, all through Africa and South America and other places. So this there was a global vision of mission, and it set the stage for our 20th century that we're calling the ecumenical century to follow. Really, it's important to understand it. Otherwise, I know you could have had an ecumenical century, an ecumenical movement in the 20th century. It took Protestantism out of its isolation in the West. And it brought it face to face, both with cultures, peoples, and faiths around the world, and with its own divisions. This is the most important thing. It came, had to come to terms with its own divisions, reflected in the denominational chaos, which was translated to the mission field. So the missionaries were saying, whoa, wait a minute, we can't do mission when we're 14 different groups in Zaire or wherever in Africa. And the people are saying to us in the commission, what are you? That what are you Christians and why aren't you together? And which Christian should I become? All the rest. The implications of their division now, which had grown steadily since the Reformation began, the many different groups, that was on full display in the mission field. Secondly, the missionary movement went hand in hand 
as I said, with colonial and economic expansion. In this way, the worldwide spread of Protestantism is seen to be an important factor in the first stages of the process of globalization, which has been built upon the common language and culture of the Protestant West. So to understand this phenomenon that we're living at uh, in full throttle today, this new world order, this one world government that people want to establish, uh, the, the process of globalization and the fruit of globalization, it actually be, it actually could not really have taken off and existed without Protestant missionary work throughout the world, because that's the common language and culture upon which globalization was based, the English language and the Protestant uh, West of America and England mainly. Of course, technology and all the rest sped it up even greater, but it, it really does begin uh, on the uh, tales of uh, the colonialists and the missionaries uh, throughout the uh, throughout the world. Uh, so the Protestant missionary enterprise served as the springboard of the ecumenical movement and prepared the ground for the arrival of the ecumenical century and the move from a missionary to an ecumenical ecclesiology. So step two now, milestone two, we have the evangelical ecclesiology, the invisible church that was developed in earnest in the among the missionaries and the Protestant theologians at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. They were united in evangelical experience through the missionary societies, societies which were multi, multi-denominational, in spite of or in indifference to dogmatic differences. Dogmatic differences were not an obstacle for their unity. The unity of the evangelicals can rightly be said to be one of the first expressions of the contemporary ecumenical spirit. As was written by T.V. Philip, they shared an experience that marked them off decisively from all others and gathered them together in the fellowship of an invisible church of, to, of Christ to which all vital, quote unquote, vital Christians belonged. So this is a real phenomenon. This is really a, a new phenomenon in 19th, 20th, early 20th century among Protestants. Uh, it grew uh, you know, tremendously in the 20th century as well, the evangelicals throughout denominations. And, it, and, and it's, it's a catalyst for doing away with denominational divisions and, of course, essentially becoming less and less sensitive to any kind of doctrinal implications in one's life. Like, what does doctrine and dogma have to do with uh, our life when we all feel we're already united anyway? So maybe dogma is really not necessary, right? It was not a matter of, uh, the experience was not a matter of theological reflection, but rather of general experiential crisis. So they came up and it was embraced, this idea that theologies could divide if theologies could divide, and that was the experience of Protestantism for hundreds of years, and of course with, with Catholicism, well, experience could unite. So this was a liberating, uh, you know, in quote-unquote liberating time for a lot of Protestant Christians. They felt that there was just so much expectation from this mission endeavor, and so many fruits had come quickly uh, to restore a kind of unity on the ground among Protestants, which they did not have, of course, through wars and divisions and schisms that had growing steadily since the formation. Uh, so this evangelical ecclesiology, as we said, that said that experience is paramount, uh, it came uh, to bring a, an end to the denominational walls and, and Christian unity came to be based on a subjective experience. This is very important. Christian unity based on subjective experience, divorced from theological truth, the theological dogma, 
Okay, this meant that divisions of a doctrinal or ecclesiological nature were to be overlooked for the sake of an unclear ideal of quote Christianity. And what does that mean exactly? It's not so it's an experience, so we don't have to define things and just let's move on because we have a lot of work to do in the mission field. In this way, the unity of theology and experience, life and truth, were rent asunder. The door was flung open to the creation of a church within and transcending the churches, a church within and transcending the Protestant denominations, a kind of super but invisible church made up of all vital Christians possessing special traits. That was very encouraging, probably very full of pride, right? I'm special, and they don't, they don't have what I have. We're special people. We're special missionaries with special experiences and special knowledge. So this is part two. Now we go to milestone three, end of the 19th century. This is very general, of course. We're just talking about general themes, general you know approaches here, uh, and very from a thousand feet up, but giving you a sense of this historical process which brought about the birth of the ecumenical movement. What we see developing out of those same missionaries and those missionary societies, there are other things like the YMCA, very big in the 19, early 1900s, and the student Christian movements, very important to especially European uh, Christian, uh, Protestant Christians. Inspiration of the ecumenical generation. These were the future leaders of the ecumenical movement. They were coming from these movements, and they're very important uh, in the development of the future ecumenical movement. Uh, so there were student movements all over the place, in many lands, and they had coalesced in the World Student Christian Federation. John Mott, the famous John Mott, if you know a little bit about Protestant missionary history in the early 20th century, the symbol and prophet of the transition from evangelicalism to ecumenism, and the man responsible for the Federation, he wrote the following the day after its foundation. So the day after they start this student Christian Federation, all these different groups, and they're very excited, he says the following. And here he is on the left, you can see a picture of him as a young man, and then as an old man, he lived from 1865 to 1955. And it's very interesting that underneath his, in this memoriam, of course, is the famous term, a phrase that they're going to take from the Gospel of John and, and they're going to use in the ecumenical movement, that they all may be one. Now, we could talk about that. Unfortunately, their interpretation of it is not patristic. It's not, not as we understand the Orthodox Church. And the Church Fathers understood it. And unfortunately, Orthodox leaders have bought into this idea that this is a prayer of our Lord himself for the kind of unity to be sought and found that we said is a given. Right? So this is a given unity by God to his disciples. It's a unity in theosis eventually, essentially, right? It's to, for them to be united in God. That that's the prayer that the, his disciples. So it's a, it's a given unity to the body of Christ and not something that is to be found among those who've departed from the body of Christ as if, and separate from the body of Christ, as if one can create that uh, outside of the uh, continuation of the incarnation, which is the church. He said, the federation, the federation will unite in spirit the students of the world. And in doing this, it will be achieving a yet more significant result, the hastening of the answer to our Lord's prayer, that they all may be one. You see the interpretation here, not the patristic interpretation. In doing, in doing this, it will be achieving 
that we're going to achieve this. We're going to make this reality through our student movements and our missionary societies. We're going to bring this about as if it's something that needs to be created. It doesn't exist. It's a given. But we, as we said from Pentecost on, it's very clear in the day of Pentecost that it was given from on high to an identifiable body in time and space and passed on through uh, the church's uh, uh, holy tradition and, and ordination and, and the Orthodox faith, right? So this is this is the patristic understanding of our unity. No, we're going to work to hasten uh, hasten of the answer to our Lord's prayer. We're going to answer the Lord's prayer as if that's something that is achieved by human beings that they may be one. Surely there may there has been no more hopeful development towards a real spiritual union of Christendom than the Federation. So he's saying, that, look, our Federation is the greatest hope on the face of the earth for Christian unity right now, which unites in common purpose and work the coming leaders of the church and state in all lands. So really heady stuff. And this is the way it is in Protestant. Anybody who's been a Protestant has been active in activism and, you know, the words of the pro-life movement or missionary work. It's very heady. It's very optimistic, very, you know, uh, activist. We're going to do this. We're going to take this. We're going to get it done. Uh, and that's, that's how it was, uh, you know, over a hundred years ago in the student Christian movements. Now, he goes, we go on, another aspect, another little thought about this, just to fill in the blank. Uh, a ecumenical historian who also worked with Mott wrote the following. What was the new ecumenical idea? We have a new innovative idea here that's, that's new, it hasn't been thought about, which the student Christian movement was destined to introduce to the church. It was the idea of a new type of Christian organization, a new conception of the basis upon, on which Christians belonging to different churches might unite in, to win the world for Christ. So we have uh, this new conception of how we're going to do mission, right? On an interdenominational rather than an undenominational basis. So we have a new thing in church history, according to the Protestants here, that we're going to have a Essentially, remember, in and transcending the denominations, we've achieved a new unity that's never been seen before, and it's going to win the world for Christ. So, so the ecumenical movement was always tied to mission. It's always tied to a goal of reaching out to the non-Christians. Okay, that's, that's the context of the ecumenical movement in the Protestant world, and the Orthodox just accepted that as a given. It was a movement which started with the belief that they have sh they shared the life in Christ. We start with, we're already united. That's where we start. We share the life in Christ with fellow believers. And it recognized the believers' allegiance to various Christian bodies into which, as they thought, the body of Christ is divided. So, again, the context here, entirely a foreign ecclesiology to the then 1,900-year-old uh you know, reality of, of Pentecost on earth, uh, something that's, it's, it's, it's an innovation, as she says, it's a new idea. And, and it's, it's about, um, you know, bringing the end of, to the, to end the division of Christ. The, Christ is divided. Uh, apparently they did, they believe when Paul asked that he was, he was asking for an answer. It was a historical question, of course, in in the epistle of the apostle. Is Christ divided? No, of course he's not divided. He cannot be divided. The student Christian movements became the link that would carry the evangelical ecclesiology beyond the narrow confines of evangelicalism. You see, 
This is very, very um, consistent with the history of Protestantism is that you have the various movements and, and developments that one kind of leads into another and, and morphs into something different. And there's just a constant movement and development and morphing of, of their Christian experience. And it's a constant, and they believe this is good. They believe this is what should happen. We should constantly be changing, innovating, and finding and reforming and finding something new and different. Uh, but from Northern perspective, it's extremely problematic and does not witness to the given, which is the revelation and the continuation of the incarnation. So it's non-doctrinal, non-ecclesial, non-sacramental. The student movements ironically at once signaled the disintegration of the Western confessions and the re reintegration, but in a non-ecclesial way. So they, are, they, they believe they're actually getting closer to an ecclesial reality and unity manifest. But in my analysis, at least, I would, have, I would posit that it's, it's a new kind of unity, which is non-ecclesial. In other words, they're stepping away. They're not stepping toward church unity. They sought Catholicity, but only horizontally, not vertically, not diachronically. Okay, Catholicity means dopliroma, right? Fullness, and that fullness, because it's Christ, is only full. It's not. It's not talking about a quantity. It's not, it's, it's actually talking about the nature of the of Christ, right? The nature of, of the Church. It's always full, and it's only full. And Christ, and only in Christ is it full. So Catholicity is 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 again something that is is a given. It's a, it's the nature of the church. There's the, the whole truth uh, and the whole experience, the, the the truth, the way, and the life without discounts. Right? It's all there. They sought that that unity, that Catholicity. They sought only on the plane of history, amongst themselves in. In, in time, they didn't seek it vertically, in other words, immediately with an in Christ, in the revelation that has been given, and they didn't seek it diachronically, in other words, they didn't go back to church history, they didn't try to follow the Holy Fathers. That was not a part of what needed to happen. We did, there was no discussion, we have to, to have unity, they, they didn't say, we have to follow the Holy Fathers, that was not part of the discussion. We have to achieve unity, we have to create unity, we have to work toward unity, Following the Holy Fathers as, as a necessary prerequisite and presupposition for unity was not on the table. Now, milestone four, Edinburgh, 1910, the cradle of 1910, the World Missionary Conference in Edinburgh, the confessed by all, the beginning really in earnest of the modern ecumenical movement. It was the first conference which sought to be inclusive of a wide range of Protestant confessions, not just evangelicals. So now the evangelicals were the spearhead, let's say. Now it's coming, it's going to the mainline Protestants, to the Methodists, to the Anglicans, to the whatever. Out of it grew the movements which would emerge to form the World Council of Churches in 1948, the International Missionary Council, which became the mission and evangelism arm of the WCC in 1961. And other, uh, in order also, uh, was going on and, and developing uh, immediately after this, convinced that God was calling them to world evangelization, the Edinburgh delegates saw church divisions as a mission weakness and unity and mission as a divine imperative. But it's always in the context of achieving success in the missionary field. 
So there's no discussion here of doctrinal unity. That doesn't really happen in need for the doctrinal unity, right? That Nobody's saying this is a prerequisite. Doctrinal unity is a prerequisite. That comes along basically with the involvement of the Orthodox in the 1920s, and nothing really is achieved by the Orthodox. There may no voice that is never really considered, considered uh, until this day. I mean, yes, yes, lip service, yes, many uh, praiseworthy things, and we're so grateful, but how much has really been achieved to bring evangelicals, Protestants, to anywhere close to the historic faith that's been revealed and passed on by the Church Fathers, uh, it's very hard to, to see how that's uh, been successful at all. Here and there, there are people who, of course, have warmed to theological ideas, but that doesn't mean conversion. That doesn't mean repentance. That doesn't mean true unity in Christ. That means, on a, again, horizontal plane, we have a alpha unity, you know, human uh, unity, which is very fragile. A united and renewed church, this is what they, they thought, a united and renewed church outfitted for a universal mission and service, moving beyond its borders, uniting the entire ecumenity, the entire world. This is the new dream that stirred men into performing the incredible drama of Edinburgh and the modern ecumenical movement. This dream is they're going to achieve it. It's just filled with optimism. It's a dream of eschatological implications, it was, it was said, of course. And they are quite correct to see it in it a strange inversion of the Christian church, which had hitherto existed. Remember what we said? It's something new. It's not the church that was revealed. It's something new. They're trying to achieve it in a different way, in a different plane, and with different uh, givens, uh, not theological and doctrinal unity. In a different way, we're going to have unity. And in the wall of doctrine began to fall. And in their place were erected the belief that differences would be transcended without being surrendered. Differences would be transcended without being surrendered. It's like a magic show of, of sorts. You know, we're going to. After Edinburgh, however, the Orthodox would soon enter the scene and be forced to work within a, such a framework and mindset that did not allow for orth Orthodox ecclesiological presuppositions. All right. So now, the last and final milestone for this part of church of the history. We're not going to go continue on in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. We're not going to go through the whole history of the ecumenical movement. Because really, after the 20s and after the encyclical that was issued by the ecumenical patriarchate, um, then things there's a trajectory that's followed and pretty much it continues in that all the way up to today with some very important events like the Second, the Second Vatican Council and, uh, and other uh, major events that, that push the ecumenical movement further on toward a unity, but not, again, a unity that's a turn, like the prodigal going back to the father or the submission of the rationalist to the mystery and a, therefore a initiation uh, crucifixion of the mind, that kind of thing is not happening. But we're going to have agreements on, on levels. We're going to admit that we're already there. I mean, the Orthodox will, from 20 on, as, as I'll say in a minute, we'll talk about the 1920 and cyclical now, but it is among the ecumenists who've succumbed to this, um, to this uh, mentality and this outlook is that they've said, uh, they've given in to the basic presuppositions of the ecumenical movement that laid down by the uh, early fathers here of the, of the ecumenical movement, that is that we already have unity, right? And that's what the Second Vatican Council will say. They'll say we're already unified. It's just not full, right? We have a partial. 
And they'll say eventually that it's anathema to talk about a, a humanism of return. What do they mean? No one's going to have to return to someone else. We're all returning to Christ because we're all divided. Okay, that's that's the new doctrine. The new dogma never, never taught among the disciples of Christ in his church, the Orthodox Church for the last 2,000 years. It's a new idea which is very much consistent with what we just talked about in the evangelical ecclesiology the, and then the ecumenical ecclesiology coming out of that. It's totally consistent with that and totally inconsistent with the Orthodox vision of the church. Fortunately, it didn't take long for uh, John Mott and, and his friends from the various student movements to go to at Russia and go to Constantinople in 1910. There was a big meeting there. And very quickly, among the leaders of uh, some leaders in the ecumenical patriarchate, unfortunately, including the two you see here on the screen, Metropolitan Girmanos, Strinopoulos uh, of Fiatira, he was the first bishop in England for the ecumenical patriarchate. Uh, and, uh, and then there was the patriarch Girmanos, uh, the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople from 1913 to 1918. He died in 1920. He is said to have, along with, I think, I think he played a role, is he's the author of this encyclical. It's called To the Churches of Christ Everywhere, Upon the Who Ecclesias Christu. So the term, of course, that we want to pay attention to here is church. The term is used in this encyclical in a way that the Orthodox had never used it before. In fact, just a few years before, in the, in the 1890s, and then before that, about 40 years before in the 1850s, the Orthodox patriarchs of Constantinople and other, and other bishops, the patriarchs uh, in the first one was, was, was from the patriarchs of Alexandria and Antioch, they issued a uh, letter to the Pope of Rome and clearly said that there's only one church, that there can be only one church, that's the nature of, of, of the body of Christ, that the unity, everything is very consistent with patristic teaching. So now this author and this encyclical, which comes out in 1920, which is actually uh, during a time when there was no patriarch. There were, they were waiting, I guess, to elect the patriarch, but there was no patriarch at the time. It was a locum tenens. Uh, as they call it, somebody who's sitting in the place of the patriarch until the election. And the issue of this encyclical, and it has a new consideration of the church, and it's, it was being urged upon the churches for a new consideration, using this phrase from Ephesians to describe the various non-Orthodox churches and the one holy Catholic and apostolic church in the same phrase, apparently in the same meaning that there should they should no more consider one another as strangers and foreigners but as relatives and as being part of the household of Christ and fairs members of the same body and partakers of the promise of God in Christ and that phrase members of the same body is now applied in this encyclical and Metropolitan Gimenez writes about this encyclical praising it the following which gives us it's very clear that that's how they understand it, that this is not some mistaken understanding or something, that they understand it in an ecclesiological sense. And we're talking about the church in a different way. And he says, how wide the conception is, is which the encyclical teaches at this point becomes clear in that it widens the notion of the relationships between the members of a single church. Hmm. This is written to non-Orthodox churches. It is to the quote-unquote churches of Christ everywhere 
So now you have a clear reference to members, relationships between members of a single church. Which church is that exactly? We're, we don't have the same communion. We don't have the same faith. But as members of one body, according to St. Paul's wonderful teaching, so as to apply it to the relationships between several churches. Now, it's in the, it's clearly in not in the context of the Orthodox local churches. Some might say, well, maybe he's talking about the local Orthodox churches. In other words, the Church of Greece, the Church of Romania, the Church of Bulgaria. No, this is not sent to them only. And mainly it's obviously a ecumenical tool and it's celebrated this day. They said the 100th anniversary two years ago. And it's clearly celebrated as a ecumenical, in other words, for the ecumenical movement among the heterodox churches. So there's no, I don't think there's any room here for misunderstanding. This is a major shift on the part of some people in the ecumenical patriarchate to depart from the orthodox understanding and to embrace what we just presented, which was an evangelical uh, Protestant understanding of the church. And of course, the only thing that happens is that people walk away from the fathers with, with catastrophic consequences. It doesn't really change anything in terms of the church. The church is, again, a given. It's a revelation. We enter into that. And we follow the Holy Fathers. We don't create new ideas and new movements to change what has been revealed by God. In widening the notion of the church to include bodies neither ecclesiastically, sacramentally, or dogmatically in communion with the Orthodox Church, Metropolitan Germanos or Patriarch Germanos is in perfect harmony both with the foregoing evangelical ecclesiology, which speaks of a fellowship of an invisible church of Christ to which all vital, quote-unquote, vital Christians belonged, as well as the succeeding ecumenical ecclesiology, which, although quite similar in its admission of an existing invisible, quote-unquote, mystical body of Christ, seeks a manifest unity in Christ. So now that the Orthodox involved and other mainline Protestants involved, they're no longer satisfied with this church within and above and transcending. They want to manifest unity. They want to take this, this given unity, everybody everybody acknowledges, like we're all one in Christ, right? But what does that mean? Well, it's not, it's not manifest, but we're invisibly we're all one in Christ, right? There's it's a new ecclesiology. Okay, but that's nice, but that's not enough. We need a manifest unity in Christ. So in both on both counts, we have a new teaching, a teaching that is not the teaching of the Holy Fathers. We don't believe and have never believed that it's possible to be united in Christ without a manifest unity like the evangelical experience, that you can have dogmatic differences, you can have actually opposition in terms of dogma and doctrine, that you have, in other words, falsehood, you can have chaos in terms of the revelation, who Christ is, what the church is, what it means to be in Christ, all those things can be wildly opposed or not not expressing the same belief. And yet you can talk about the same experience, the same Christ, the same church, because that's the revelation. The revelation is a given. So if you, you can't have those differences and talk about the same experience. Experience and theology are inseparable. Life and faith are inseparable. But here we have a division. So neither that nor the new version, which is we're going to manifest that unity which exists as if it's not already manifest. I mean, it's a given, it's Christ, and it's manifest. That's the incarnation. So we're doubting the incarnation, essentially, right? We're doubting that, it, that the incarnation continues. We're doubting the words of the Lord that he will be with us always. We're doubting that 
It's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have to manifest that. It doesn't exist right now. We're going to make it real. We're going to manifest it. Okay, so that's that's going on. And unfortunately, it's unmistakable that this encyclical is in sync with that whole mentality that was that was already already existed. The nineteen twenty encyclical has wrongly been hailed as a prophetic and groundbreaking event, which not only ushered in the Orthodox into the ecumenical movement, but largely was responsible for the movement itself. That is not correct. That is a wishful thinking on the part of Orthodox ecumenists. Rather, the encyclical appears to be a reaction and a departure. It's a reaction to political and world events and a departure from hitherto cautious approach based on the experience of the Orthodox and churches ancient canons. you got to remember, this is World War I, right in, the, right in the heels of World War I, which was very traumatic for all of Europe. You know, probably the worst, obviously the worst to that point in terms of death and destruction and all the rest. So people are are looking, and this is not an accident, right? This is, this is a part of the whole 20th century. The 20th century continued the same kind of thing. We have massive wars, massive fear, massive destruction, and then people run to do away with whatever is dividing them, regardless of truth or dogma. And, and that's, that's, I don't think, an, an accident by any means. And so uh, you have a departure, but it was more than just a departure. It represented a remarkable change of mind. I'm quoting now uh, people in the uh, ecumenical movement at the time. With the encyclical, the patriarchate did not, simply change its stance vis-a-vis the heterodox confessions. Of course, it's not that simple. It changed its understanding of the Orthodox Church itself. This is the major difference apart uh, in the ecumenical patriarchate in the 1920s, is you have a different perception of the church itself. And it can't be otherwise, right? These things are uh, go together. Your understanding of the church is going to, of course, affect and, and guide your understanding of those outside the church among the heterodox. If you change your vision of the heterodox, you're going to end up changing your vision of the church in sense of ecclesial, uh, in terms of the church and what it is, right? We're going to change that. It's going to be inevitable. It's the same thing we're going to face going forward in terms of the religions of the world. People are going to say, uh, once upon a time, people said, you know, the religions are um, inspired by demons. It says in the Psalms. and clearly they're not revelations of God. Well, now there is perennialism and other isms of our day who clearly posit that the religions are expressions and revelations and uh, in the providence of God for the salvation of mankind. So if you accept that, of course, you change who Christ is. Your understanding of who Christ is, is going to change. And that's exactly where we're headed, right? We're going to have people coming and saying, not deny Christ, but accept the religions as salvific. And that will be a denial of Christ indirectly. And it's not really much different than what they had going on in the 1920s on the ecclesial level. Now it's going to jump eventually to the person of Christ himself with regard to the various uh, religions of the world. So if you're interested in this topic, the history, uh, it's a small book, uh, but it is, of course, much more there than I could present tonight. You can pick it up. Unfortunately, I don't think it's really available right now. It's sold out. You can find it in different places, maybe online, maybe Amazon has some old copies. But it is actually available, uh, just downloadable, uh, just the text uh, online. If you go and just search the title, you'll find a PDF of it. Won't have the pictures, won't have the introduction, things like that, but it'll, you can get the basic uh, text. Now, 
Let's go quickly through a few, a few things. Before. We want to run to the fathers and get to the patristic teaching here. But just so you get a sense of things, right? So if, hopefully this is not a very good image and I didn't have time to write it all up and present it. But hopefully you can see. Let me just go full screen on this so you can see what we're talking about historically. So here uh, on the left, you see the ecumenical tree, it says. And underneath it says Edinburgh, 1910. And out of Edinburgh, you have these different movements. You have the Missionary Cooperation, International Missionary Council, uh, meetings in Jerusalem. This is the, the far left, the line coming down the far left. It continues on the box on the right, and then through Mandras, 1928, etc. Okay, and then you have the Faith and Order, Geneva, Lausanne, uh, Edinburgh, etc., all the way to the, the founding of the World Council of Churches in 1948, the First Assembly. That's a part of that. It becomes a part of that. Uh, the Life and Work, the third one over from the left, uh, begins after Edinburgh. That's another group of ecumenical scholars and churchmen, and that also leads eventually to the founding of the World Council of Churches. These different movements are burst out of Edinburgh. Eventually, they unite 38 years later, and they become the World Council of Churches. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, history continues with the Second Vatican Council, which is a, the other major event in terms of um, propelling uh, ecumenism on its way uh, in terms, you know, along these lines of this ecclesiology, uh, more refined at Vatican II, but not substantially different in terms of believing in a church that can be divided, a church that is partial, uh, experience of Christ, which is partial, uh, and all the rest. Now, this little image here hopefully will help you also to frame the whole question of ecumenism, ecumenical movement. Uh, you can see here that there's uh, in the far left, there's different things coming together to form the World Missionary Conference in Edinburgh in 1910. You have different movements, different student movements, et cetera, et cetera. And there you have the, the, the first big circle here, Edinburgh in 1910 on the left. And out of that, there's three movements that we just said, right? We have the International Missionary Council. We have the Faith and Order. We have Life and Work. And you see those three like rivers. And eventually, 1948, they're all... Uh, there, well, two of them are united in 1948. Eventually, the Missionary Council becomes a part of the World Council of Churches in 61. Uh, now, you have two little things here that 1911 and 1920, the encyclical, which have the little uh, pyramid with an eye, that is a, a symbol of the participation of the ecumenical patriarchate uh, in the, uh, the various uh, movements of uh, ecumenism uh, in the early uh, part of the century that are formative for the ecumenical patriarchate to be involved in ecumenism. Uh, but pretty much the dominating personalities and ideologies and all the rest comes from the Protestant world. The Orthodox are a minority and they have changed very little. And it goes on and through, uh, well, this at this point it was only 1998, but it continues on with various uh, gatherings and all the rest. So that'll give you hopefully a sense of ecumenical movement as a movement. But we're interested in the dogma of ecumenism. In other words, the question of the church we, because this is a question of faith. We don't confess, we don't say we acknowledge the church. From the 4th century on with the, I mean, in terms of a creed, from the 4th century on, we always believe this, but it was put down in the uh, uh, 381 in the Second Ecumenical Council. What do we confess? I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, just like we believe in the Father, believe in the Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit, we believe in the church. Why is it that? Is it, a, is it a fourth person of the Trinity? No, it's the 
incarnate logos, the body of Christ. It is the God-man. And so it is a divine human organism. It is a, the unity of man and God. It's, it's, it's where salvation is worked out. It is a, uh, you know, the famous saying of St. Cyprian, which many people have stumbled over and misunderstood, uh, that outside the church there is no salvation. As Father George Florovsky famously said, it's, uh, it's simply saying the obvious, and that is that the church is salvation because the church is Christ. And we believe in the church, right? So this is hugely important for us to understand here because, and why we want to understand ecumenism and the ecumenical movement, because we want to understand this, what the boundaries are in terms of the faith and not to fall outside that. We want to stay on the narrow path of salvation. We don't want to be confused and drawn away into a new an innovative idea, like they said, they were very happy about this new and innovative idea about the church and how it works and unity and all this. We're not interested in that. We're orthodox. We want to stay faithful to what's been revealed by Jesus Christ, the apostles, and the church has confessed for 2,000 years. So, so it's extremely important now. Let's enter into the question of the church, the dogma of the church, and uh, um, what it means to be a member of the church. Now, we'll begin just for a few words from Father Michael Pomazansky, who was a famous teacher of dogmatic theology at Holy Trinity Seminary and a uh, uh, immigrant from Russia, uh, the great tradition of learned men at the turn of the century who came. And now he just says something fairly obvious, but important for us to understand. In the 1950s and 60s, when he's writing, he says, look, this is uh, this embrace and running toward dialogue actually is not justified. We can talk about that. We've talked about it in the past. Very important to understand the proper understanding of Christian conversion and unity is not to engage in dialogue, which is not in the sense of seeking answers from Christ, but in the sense of we're going to search together and and we're going to find the truth as if it's not been revealed. Okay, so that's the kind of dialogue that's going on in the 20th century. They clearly state that in all the, the various dialogues that we uh, we accept that we have we as Orthodox and you as whatever papal Protestants have to come to the table, and both of us have to accept and change and, and embrace. So that's a given in ecumenism. That kind of dialogue is not justified because. The things that are being put on the table are not for negotiation. They're not, it's not possible for us to dialogue about that. We simply preach Christ crucified, present him, and it is between the person and the people and the leaders and Christ himself to accept the gospel and embrace Christ. That's not up for debate or negotiation on our part. We, that's our duty as Orthodox Christians to simply preach and teach and present the faith. So, unfortunately, the ecumenical movement is not occupied with the question of the unity of faith, as we saw. It's mainly about mission. We, we, we have a unity already. Let's figure out how we can do mission together. But with the aim of participating in the proposed plan for of an epical, a very massive reconstruction of human society, that's what's going on in the 20th century, globalization and all of the other that's now you can now you're we're ending up in transhumanism. All of that is a process of the 20th century 
of 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 reimagining, refashioning, re uh, reworking the the old order and bringing the new order. Right, uh, that's what he saw very early on and is talking about here. That this is what it's all about. Nonetheless, he says, sooner or later, the question of the foundations and scope of Christian faith in this attempt at union will have to arise. In other words, we will have to come to terms with the fact that our participation is impinging upon and, and, and undermining the question of Christian faith and has to be addressed. It is our obligation to show why this movement cannot be justified. In other words, we have to come and spend time. This is very important. The Orthodox have to give a witness to the nature of the problem here because clearly, they did not understand it among the, among themselves, the Protestants and the others, and teach through uh, example and word why this is this dialogue is unjustified. We ourselves will not be completely justified if we descend from the breadth of the Orthodox worldview with all its fullness to a narrow platform of conceptions and most importantly to Western conceptions of the church. Exactly what has happened among those who are involved in ecumenism in many ways. Now, not everyone. There are exceptions. There always are exceptions. And thank God there are people who are still, at least theoretically, hanging on to Orthodox Christian faith. Not as many as there used to be. Florovsky was a great example of someone who was engaged, uh, but never uh, totally. I mean, he had some errors, but never totally compromised, obviously, uh, the Orthodox faith in terms of our confession of faith, although he was quite wrong in his Limits of the Church article. Uh, because he embraced Augustinian ideas, which had never been at the heart of the Orthodox ecclesiology. Uh, so in any case, he's saying, look, if you go there and you adopt those, well, it's, it's, uh, uh, there's not going to be anything positive coming out of it. And that's, that's largely what has happened, especially after Vatican II. Now, a word about this aspect of things. And it's been, as you saw, and it's been much more the case since the 60s, 70s, 80s, ecumenism's always been about the sociological horizontal plane. This earth, this life, and our working together to make it a better place, to make it a unified place, to, to bring the gospel. Uh, the English, you know, the early missionaries were doing, bring English to the natives. We got to teach them English. We got to teach them culture and, you know, English and American culture. And, and then we've got to make them Christians. It was this, this multifaceted kind of inculturization of Western society into the world. That's from the very beginning been the tone set by missionaries. There was no, nobody said, well, wait a minute, that's not really right, is it? But no, no, that's fine. That's who we are. We're going to bring that. It's, a, it's, again, a big part of why we have globalization today. And it's reaching such, uh, such degrees today with, with uh, talk of a one world government, one world uh, new order and all the rest. Uh, it's based on that, uh, that massive uh, missionary drive in the 19th century. So this is what's going on in ecumenism throughout the 20th century and today. It distorts the church, turns her earthward to the sociological plane. It, this, it, it, it brings it from the spiritual and the dogmatic plane and makes the church something that's serving man in this life, right? And we hear that all the time. The church should be about helping people. The church should be about... Uh, uh, you know, the philanthropic work, of course, as a fruit of our life in Christ, not as a aim and as an end of our life in Christ. And then that's the great distortion. And it will, it is plain and bringing about the ascent of and the rise of the spirit of Antichrist. Because he will direct all the attention to this world and saving people from 
the troubles and the sicknesses and the wars of this world without any talk about eternal life as the aim of the uh, of the life of the church. It'll be a total distortion of the church to, to make it earthbound and earthward. So this is what's happening largely uh, in the ecumenical movement. And this uh, saintly bishop who's reposed now, uh, Metropolitan Pavlos, Paul from Athens, uh, he says, I'm just going to read the second part. In Orthodox theology, we do not have a community of churches, because they were talking about making the, the community of churches. Um, let's see, this contextual theology was the conversion of missions into a community of churches in mission. Okay, so he says, we don't have that. We have one holy Catholic apostolic church. The appearance of Christian missions emerging from a, quote, community of churches degrades the one church to a group of denominations that does not reveal the only truth and further degrades missionary work to what? To a sociological instead of a soteriological perspective. That's the first casualty. And of course, that's why it is so dangerous. And it is a part and parcel of the descent of Antichrist because the first victim is salvation. In and in Christ and for Christ in the body of Christ. And that's the proof that this is satanic and demonic, ultimately, because it takes people not into the body of Christ and initiation, which has to be the end of everything we do. If our preaching at the end keeps people in delusion outside the body of Christ, it doesn't bring an end to heresy. It doesn't bring an end uh, to delusion and schism. If our preaching and teaching is ineffective to bring people to repentance, in other words, we're distorting it and therefore becomes of this world, well, that, of course, is a proof and a confirmation that we've departed from the church and the Holy Fathers. And this is the, this is what ecumenism does. It deadens and it actually blocks the return. And it, it totally, uh, in many ways, uh, blurs the boundaries. And therefore, those who are outside of the boundaries of the church they no longer see and understand their distance. But they have this idea that they're already in. And that's being done by Orthodox Christians many times. They're blurring the boundaries. They're intentionally saying salvation, participation is possible outside of the Orthodox faith, outside of the Orthodox church, outside of the given and the revelation of Jesus Christ among the various earth-made denominations. Uh, And that is just... Not, not just an error, it's an anti-gospel. It's an anti-gospel at the end of the day. So very, very uh, instructive. We could go on, we could have a whole evening, we probably should at one point have an whole evening about the social gospel and the distortion of the gospel and the earthbound, uh, earthward turn uh, of many Christians, which is a uh, preparation for Antichrist eventually. Now let's turn our, our, our attention to what's become the most important um, way in which ecumenism talks about our unity, and that is a common baptism. Right? It's hugely important in the ecumenical movement. It's hugely important uh, as, as, a, uh, as a bridge. Uh, if we can all say that we're baptized, and that's what Vatican II does, it accepts the baptism of all Christians as, as somehow initiating, partially so, uh, those people who've been baptized. And of course, baptism here doesn't mean immersion, which is what it does mean in Greek. Uh, it means immersion in the water. It doesn't mean that. Uh, here, it means simply using water. And you can see here in the pictures, uh, the Pope, in uh, both cases, in Sistine Chapel, he's giving us an example of what it means to baptize for the uh, the Pope and, and the Vatican. And, of course, it means a little bit of water 
on the forehead of the child. And now that's not baptism, actually. And you might say, well, don't, don't be such a stickler. Well, what if we were to say to you, um, you don't need to use bread and wine. It's not important. Don't be a stickler. Use crackers and grape juice or whatever it is. And it actually doesn't really matter what you do. It more or less symbolize what the... Is that something that people would say, oh, yeah, 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 it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Or would they say, no, 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 this is an abomination. And yet with this mystery, the distortion going back to Aquinas, justification for baptism being basically a washing and not immersion, and therefore any old way, sprinkling, pouring, it doesn't matter. That's an Aquinas doctrine, never a patristic doctrine. That has passed into so many Orthodox heads today that we have relativized and, and done away with the need to actually be immersed in the water, which is the expression of the theology of the church. Even Roman Catholic scholars say as much that that's the proper way to express the mystery. And yet it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you do that. Well, it does matter for the Orthodox. It's as integral to the mystery. It's extremely important. And so you see uh, right here that this is a manifest of the of the mentality. In other words, the dumbing down, the minimization, the min minimal uh, uh, requirement of being a Christian is just to have the words said and the water sprinkled by somebody somewhere. This is this is this is taught not in Vatican II, but all the way going back to Trent, that a atheist, a non-believer, a Jew, anyone can do this as long as they're doing it as the church intends and they're using the water and they're saying the words. That's the, that, that's the legalistic, delusional teaching that's present for hundreds of years among the papal Protestants and the, and the followers of the Pope. Never a part of the Orthodox Church's understanding of things. It's actually, I would say, a, a mockery of the mystery to talk about it in such a way, as if anyone can initiate into Christ who's not themselves initiated into Christ. This is the epitome of, of a legalization which basically does, does away with the mystery. So this is the reality. Not, not only physically and manifestly have they abandoned the meaning of baptism, but feel, and that's an expression, rather, of their theological and spiritual understanding of the mystery as well, in many ways. They've, they've, they've uh, 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 dissolved the fullness and the glory of, of the mystery coming down from our Lord and the Holy Fathers. And so this, quote-unquote, baptism, which is whatever each denomination wants to be, one time in the water of the Baptists, Three sprinkling over the head, uh, the Anglicans and the, and the Roman Catholics, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's it's a right. It's just, just water. So we are disciples of Aquinas if we follow this, and not disciples of the Holy Fathers. This teaching that there is a quote unquote common baptism among all Christians, and that therefore, if the Orthodox are being pressured to accept the idea that therefore, outside of the one mystery of the Church, the mysteries, the sacraments exist. So then we have to embrace the idea that Christ is given and giving himself in these quote-unquote baptisms to initiate these souls into what? To the church. Oh, therefore, we have a new understanding of the church. We have a church that's divided, a church that has heresy, a church that uh, has a totally different uh, understanding of the Eucharist, of, uh, of all these things. We have now initiation into something that essentially is an invisible church. It ends up being an invisible church because you it's no longer united to the faith. It's no longer the all three together, way, truth, and life. But now we have a legalistic, 
minimalization uh, of the uh, of the very meaning of these mysteries and of life in Christ. How is one who is in a Protestant evangelical, uh, you know, newly created denomination 50 years ago, 20 years ago, and doesn't believe in the Eucharist, doesn't confess the Orthodox faith, uh, doesn't have a priesthood? How is that person? Vatican II teaches this, and some Orthodox humanist teaches. How is that person initiated into the life of Christ? How is he initiated into the Orthodox faith? When when did he have the exorcism read over him? When did he go through the process of purification to accept the faith? When did any of that happen? And yet that's the idea that's pre predominant in the ecumenical movement with some hierarchs, prominent hierarchs, patriarchs, saying the following. We exhort our faithful. Catholic and Orthodox, this is a common declaration, to strengthen the spirit of brotherhood, which derives from a single baptism and participation in the sacramental life. So here is a confession among prominent Orthodox leaders that the Roman Catholic Pope, the Papal Protestants, what we call here the Papal Protestants, because the Pope was the first Protestant. He walked away from the church and protested and did not listen to the church, but walked away on his own. He became the, the prototype for all the, all the Reformed Protestants. He and the Orthodox share and give and impart the one baptism and sacramental life, which means, of course, the Eucharist. So you have the Orthodox who now have a totally new vision of the church. And, of course, it's a heretical vision. And it is uh, abomination and nothing to do with the church's teaching for 2,000 years, as you will see in a moment when we present the patristic teaching. We have another patriarch who said, we're all Orthodox and heterodox members of Christ. A single unique body, a single unique new creation, since our common baptism has freed us from death. Now, these men who teach this have fallen away from Christ and from the church. They've never been condemned, unfortunately. In other words, they've never been called to repentance. That's what I mean to say. Their teaching has not been condemned, and they've been not called to repentance by the holy synods of their churches. And therefore, we have a major problem. But it is, it is where we are headed. And, and because there's not the checks and balances that need to go on. And so we are uh, moving quickly toward a distortion uh, being now manifest, perhaps in a false union and all the rest. We'll see what God allows and what, how much repentance we all have for this state of things. Uh, but let's look now at the Orthodox understanding of the mystery of baptism. It's one Lord, of course, one faith, one baptism. The church's understanding of heterodox baptism flows from and is determined by its self-understanding of being the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, which alone performs the one baptism into the death and resurrection of Christ. In other words, we're saying the obvious. There's one church, and the mysteries are in that one body, and they're performed and given, and he, he himself, Christ, uh, gives. And we're just, it's, it's just obvious. The minute we move away from that, then we have a new idea of what the church is. We've moved away from the revelation uh, they, uh, God has given us as to what the, the, his body is. And it's this church which performs the one baptism, of course, initiates into the death and resurrection of Christ. So this is so for the church is known in her mysteries, as we said, right? The church is manifest in her mysteries. The minute you say the mysteries are there among the non-Orthodox, the church is there. The church is there. Because that's how you know the church is somewhere because the mysteries, they're the boundaries. They're the boundaries and, and, the, and they make manifest the boundaries of the church. In and through the mysteries of the church, the church exists and is continually formed. 
her borders are set, her members identified. Those who live their lives outside the mysterious or mysteriological life of, are outside the body of Christ. It's that simple. Does it mean they're not that it can't follow Christ and try to love Christ? Of course not. You can try to be a Christian and struggle to be with him, but the scandal of particular that Christ is here or not there can must be dealt with and embrace. You have to embrace that with trust, just like Peter, and not rationally try to explain it away, which is what's going on in the ecumenical movement, unfortunately. So I just uh, just to say here, we on the picture. The pictures here on the left are very interesting. We, of course, we have a baptism going on, full immersion, uh, which unfortunately sometimes doesn't happen among Orthodox priests, which is a tragedy. I hope that all Orthodox priests will do what is called for and perform the mystery as it's been given to us by our Lord. And then you have uh, a very, very interesting, this picture here of uh, post-baptismal during the chrismation after a baptism. And you have the light, the uncreated light of God that's shining forth and, and been recorded here in a mysterious and uh, you know unfathomable way in this picture, as is also in this picture, same event. And this is, uh, happened in a church in New Mexico. Uh, Father John Bethancourt of Holy Trinity Antioch Northwest Church in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And he stated about this event, this picture, these pictures of this newly illumined baptized Orthodox Christian. He said, the pictures were taken a number of years ago at Holy Trinity Antioch Orthodox Church in Santa Fe, New, New Mexico. I'm the priest in the center of the picture right there with the cross. He's actually I think, retired now. And I had just completed three baptisms and was finishing a little typo there. I was finishing the chrismation is what he says. So that is a contemporary picture from the sacrament of baptism. And here you have a manifestation of the spiritual reality of the mystery of baptism in the Orthodox Church, the uncreated light taken from different angles and confessed. Here, this is another angle, same person uh, confessed by uh, uh, the priest himself. Uh, who was present, and the pictures were taken by someone, the father of one of the people who were who were baptized, uh, and he says this is uh, this is a, a miracle, and it's manifest. So I put this here to drive home what the reality of baptism is. It's not just some kind of external ritual. This is a recreation, a death and resurrection, a new life. It's Pentecost for each and one, every one of us. And why it's so, so important that the Orthodox Church not go away from its teaching, not move away from its teachings on the boundaries and on the nature of initiation into the body of Christ. So holy baptism is the portal of entry into the body of Christ, and thus the foundation and presupposition of all subsequent mysteries. The Lord himself, as Solomon declared, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Self-understanding of the church is expressed preeminently in the symbol of faith, but also in the eternal words, as we read before, of the Apostle Paul. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, one spirit, one God and Father of, of, of us all. To this unbroken unity belongs the Christian baptism. Upon this unity rests the unity of the church. The Lord, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism. These three integrate in the meaning of the one church and ensure her unbroken unity. It's really quite straightforward. We make a mess of it because we have another agenda, right? I mean, we meaning people today in our, our, our day and age. St. Cyril of Jerusalem says, 
said famously about the one baptism and the baptism of heretics in his days, fourth century. Uh, on the right here, you see a, a baptism that happened in Africa uh, by a higher monk from the monastery of Gregorio. On the right is the bishop of uh, Colesi, Meletios, the, the uh, successor to the great missionary in Congo, Father Cosmas. Uh, and uh, I think it's Prodromos, I think is the higher monk here who's baptizing there in Africa. And they baptize everyone and have from the beginning in the mission there. They baptize every single convert, whether they become from uh, Protestantism or uh, Reformed Protestantism or Papal Protestantism or uh, wherever they might be coming from, they're baptized and immersed. Now, St. Cyril of Jerusalem says, the bath of baptism we may not receive twice. Or thrice, for there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. None but the heretics are rebaptized, since their former baptism was not baptism. And this is the patristic teaching of the great catechist of Jerusalem. To this day, we celebrate his catechism and we pass it on and use it uh, to teach and initiate people into the church. That's the agrivia of the church. That's the norm. That's what we all seek. There's only Exceptions to that with under extreme and extraordinary circumstances that are called for because just like the thief on the cross, we have such circumstances where our Lord himself, through his own economy, departs temporarily from the economy that he's revealed, the crevia, the exactitude of the economy, baptism and faith, and returns quickly to that same divine economy. It's the Lord himself. He is not under his commands, right? He's over it. He's above it. He can do what he likes. And it's when he intercedes and guides his body to divert from an intemporary and extraordinary way, the norm, and we can talk about the economy. But this is the norm, the ecrivia, what you just heard from St. Cyril, and what we're presenting here. This is the norm. This is what should be happening in 99% of the cases uh, throughout the church today. Unfortunately, that's not the case, uh, but we uh, pray that it will uh, quickly return to Akrivia, as Metropolitan Herodotus Vakos and many others have said need to happen. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this question of Akrivia and Economia very quickly. Uh, we're already uh, an hour and 37 minutes into this uh, podcast, so we don't have much room for going into tangents anymore. But we'll stay quickly go through this. Pay attention, because here, I think, is a very good explanation of the Acrivia Economia uh, teaching by uh, uh, then, I think it was Proto-Presbyter, and later became Bishop George Grab, uh, Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia in, um, in New York. And he, I think, does a good job of presenting the teaching here, because it's under attack uh, and doubted by uh, those who would like us to tweak uh, our practices to make things a bit different, a bit easier uh, for converts. And uh, we've done a lot of economy, which I think is not really economy at all. It's paranomia. It's not economia. It's paranomia, which basically translates as, as a violation of the law, not a, a management uh, of the household, but a, a violation. But in any case, uh, that's my... my uh, my particular understanding, and I submit it to the church and to you all. Now, listen to what Proto-Presbyter George has to say. From the most ancient times, beginning with the words of the apostle, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, Orthodox Christians have confessed that there is only one true church to which the promise has been given that the gates of hell shall not prevail 
against it. And we also think that no matter how hard one tries, he will not find this notion contradicted either in the works of the Holy Fathers or in the Holy Canons. Properly understood within the economia, ecrivia, dichotomy, that should be given. In prescribing for various situations three modes of being joined to the church, there are different economias that have been enacted through church history, sometimes through baptism, sometimes through renunciation of heresy and chrismation, and other times simply through repentance. Fairly rare, but it did happen. And there's actually a, a lot of work being done. Just a new book came out in Greek by a scholar talking about, for instance, the Seventh Ecumenical Council and the reception and what that means and what, what's properly understood uh, because there's there's a, there's a lot of confusion today about the economia and how it's and why it's used and on what basis. But he says these uh, very situations, uh, these these needs that the church faces, the holy canons and all the holy fathers consistently support the conclusion that only the Orthodox Church unites with Christ and saves, whereas all other confessions are deprived of the grace giving and saving mysteries. So even when we apply economy, that basic dogma and confession of faith, because we believe in the church, is never doubted, never un never undermined uh, by the church fathers. Therefore, the canons call those who are united to the Orthodox Church those of the number of the heretics who are saved or being saved, right? This is the canon seven. Uh, that's how they refer to those who are coming to the church from the heterodox. Likewise, the differing practices employed in uniting the heretics to the church do not in the least alter the eternal doctrine of the Orthodox Church, that she alone is true, saving, and the dove, quote-unquote, song of songs, the dove, dove and the unique mother of Christians. And that is she in whom all the eternal and life-giving mysteries are received to salvation and who subjects those who are in heresy to great censure and punishment, Canon 68 of the Council of Carthage. This doctrine is expressed with particular vigor in the 46th Canon of the Holy Apostles, quote, we order that a bishop or presbyter who has accepted the baptism or sacrifice of heretics to be cast out, to be cast out. So if you accept it and you recognize it as a mystery, the canon is saying you need to be cast out, you need to be defrocked from the priesthood. What concord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? Quote, unquote. Now, the question is, did St. Cyprian, because this is what he's responding to in this, this portion, he's saying, People are saying, well, St. Cyprian, he changed the doctrine of the church. He's an innovator. He's uh, uh, he's the one who famously said there is no salvation outside the church. Uh, and and so uh, Father George is responding to this idea. And in this context, we're getting uh, an explanation of economia acrivia. Uh, in the book of the Helmsman, uh, quote unquote, the canonical answers of St. Timothy, Archbishop of Alexandria. Very interesting document. Uh, he was at the Second Ecumenical Council, where the confession that we read every day, twice a day, three times a day, in, in where we say we believe in the church, right? The creed, the Nicene Creed. He was at that council, all right? So remember that. when he What he says here is very important, a great witness to the doctrine of the church. Now, he says, we find in this text by, by St. Timothy, Archbishop of Alexandria, an authoritative explanation that reception into communion without baptism is neither a contradiction of that doctrine nor an admission by the church of the grace of the baptism, consequently of other religious rites of heretics, but only an exceptional order of uniting those people to the church whom the prospect of repeating the baptismal rite, we're talking about the external rite, 
okay, actual immersion. That's why saints will go on later on and say that if that rite is not done in the orthodox manner, it's not an immersion, then this economy is not possible. It's not permissible. The presuppositions do not exist. So again, he says here that this uh, reception in the communion without baptism does not therefore mean a recognition of the mysteries outside the church, but only an exceptional order of uniting those people to the church whom the prospect of repeating the baptismal rite might alienate from orthodoxy. There's a pastoral urgency for whatever reason. The church, Christ, determines that like the thief on the cross, this person can be received in such a way. The rite being performed, the external part having been performed by the heretics. Therefore, the church gives what the church, the heretics cannot give, which is the grace of God. And that's universally confessed in the time of St. Cyprian and all the rest, that this is the case. Outside the mysteries and outside the body of Christ, the mysteriological grace of the mysteries are not present outside the church, we've, as we've said again and again here tonight. Now, so the baptismal rite is not repeated. That does not mean the mysteries exist, obviously, outside the church. So the question, why do we not baptize heretics in every case who turn to the Catholic Church? St. Timothy answers, if this were done, hardly any man would turn from heresy, since he would be embarrassed by the baptism. However, the Holy Spirit can also come to, by the laying on of the priest's hand and by prayer as the Acts of the Apostles bear witness. So this is a this is a clear e exception to the to the to the rule, not the rule, and it is has its presuppositions. It's not something that anybody can just willy nilly say. Oh, I think we'll baptize this time. Oh, I think we'll chrismate this time. There has to be an urgent pastoral need, and there has to be the rite already performed among the heretics, so that the baptism is not uh, the the rite itself is not undermined. That the, 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 the externals have happened, now the spiritual life is imparted, and that it happens only in the body of Christ. One must believe that Timothy of Alexandria, who took an active part of the Second Ecumenical Council, is fully authoritative in explaining a principle which lay at the foundation of the seven, can, seven canons of that council. So who are we going to go to to figure out what that canon was all about? This is one person we're going to go to, and he gives us an explanation. People don't like to do that because they don't like, I mean, today, Cuminists and others don't want to do that. They don't want to go to Timothy. Timothy doesn't give us a good explanation because we can't fit our new ecclesiology into, you know, he doesn't make it easy for us to make a new ecclesiology, so we don't really pay attention to him. But he was at the council, which the canon was, you know, or at least the canon, some say the canon was actually written afterwards. But in any case, he was at the second of council where the confession was made about believing in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It's a very authoritative voice. It ought to be pointed out that even St. Cyprian, a defender of uncompromising procedure as regards the uniting of heretics of the church, admitted the possibility from a dogmatic point of view of there being united the church without rebaptism. And that's surprising to people, right? He says it should not happen. And in, in the, his day and age, he said there should be no, that should not happen because it's, it undermines the salvation of the heretics as you'll see. But he doesn't say it's impossible. And let's hear what he has to say. Uh, he says, but someone will say, what will happen to those who before this turn from heresy to the church? 
and were received into the church without baptism because there were such cases. Somebody was asking St. Cyprian, what about them? You're saying everybody has to be baptized. There is no baptism in the church. Yes, okay, fine. But what do we do with those cases? And he says, the Lord in his mercy is able to grant them forgiveness. And those who have been received into the church and who fell asleep in the church, he does not deprive of the gifts of his church. So he's saying, well, if you can't correct it, you can't, it's, you know, it's been done. Well, we had, we trust in the God's providence and, and, and all the rest. But if we, if it's in our hands to stop this practice, St. Cyprian certainly was for a, a crivia and the reception by baptism. So he's not supporting that, but he's also not going to the extreme of saying that the Lord can do nothing with that. The Lord in his mercy is able to grant them forgiveness, he says. Although St. Cyprian admitted them that to introduce such leniency was dogmatically permissible, he thought nevertheless that in practice it should not be allowed as a norm because on account of it, belief in the church as the unique custodian of grace would be weakened. Since there will be no reason for the heretics to turn to us when, since they have, they have supposedly baptism, they think, uh, they think they have all the rest, you see. So how much more when the presuppositions don't exist and we continue on undermining the boundaries, undermining the need for the heretics to come back, undermining the meaning of baptism itself, we're doing great disservice not only to the, her the heterodox who would be more, according to St. Cyprian, more readily to come to the church, contrary to what people say today, you know, Today, it's, it's permissiveness is the norm. There's no pedagogy like St. Cyprian's putting forward. That's the, that's the, the uh, spirit of the age, right? Whatever's easiest, weakest, you know, minimal, that's what we choose. And that's not actually spiritually um, profitable many times, and it undermines the boundaries of the church. So he, um, he says if they... If we give them the idea that they have baptism, they think they have all the rest. On the contrary, when they learn that outside the church there is no baptism and that the remission of sins cannot be granted, which is what he believed and which is the patristic stance, they will be the more eagerly and quickly come to us and will humbly ask for the treasures and the gifts of the church, knowing that they absolutely cannot attain the true promise of grace, divine grace, if they do not turn first to the true church. So this is a, this is a bit hard for some who've not been immersed in these teachings, but hopefully you can go back, listen, read, and understand the great wisdom here. They are, as always, as all church fathers, they are walking the tightrope. They are walking the royal path. They are not coming to either extreme, and but they're pointing to us the ecrivia, economia, dichotomy. They're showing us how it works in practice. They're showing us the order of things and the hierarchy of things. And how the norm is a crivia, always 99% of the time, baptism. And the exception, when there's grounds and presuppositions for it, is the economy. Uh, and that's the mind of the fathers. Now, when and how that's been done in church history, of course, there's been abuse in church history. Of course, there's been times when there's been things that should not have happened. That's not where we go to find out the mind of Christ. Church history is filled with all kinds of errors. Church history in itself is instructive, but not necessarily giving us always and everywhere examples to imitate. If we want to begin to understand this question, the boundaries of the church and the mysteries, we have to go to the church fathers, not to church history per se. 
Now, the unity of the church, and he ends this, Father George, and we'll move on. The unity of the church is uniformly confessed by the apostles, the holy councils, the holy fathers, both before and after St. Cyprian. And to tell the truth, it is only through prejudice that one could say there is any sort of contradiction in this doctrine. Or we could add that St. Cyprian is somehow not presenting the doctrine. Today, you hear that. It's a tragedy to hear Orthodox priests teach this, which is clearly not the consensus of the church fathers. Uh, and they go along with, uh, they end up saying absurd ideas about the church. Uh, you know, they're kind of searching for the patristic doctrine, and it's right in front of them. If they just listen to the church fathers who've spoken on this, uh, St. Cyprian is one of them. But St. Nicodemus and St. Paisius Belskovsky and St. Hilarion Trotsky, St. Basil the Great, many, many have spoken to this question and given us the economy, the acrivia and economia, the exactitude and the economy, a dichotomy which is, explains our practice and explains the patristic mind. Now, another big part of this whole ecumenical movement and ecumenism uh, is, of course, praying together with the heterodox. Is that blessed? We could talk for hours on that. I'm just going to give you one example, one witness, which is often neglected, uh, probably not very well known. And that is the great canonist, Theodore Balsamon, Patriarch of Antioch in the 12th century. He was asked, shall one perform priestly rites or pray together without danger with heretics, namely Jacobites and Nestorians? Now we're talking about Eastern heretics who have been condemned and and because of their refusal to accept the Orthodox faith in the 4th, 5th, 6th ecumenical councils, and actually 7th and 8th as well. And these are the Nestorians, who didn't accept the 3rd ecumenical council, and the Monophysites uh, in Syria, the Jacobites, who did not accept the 4th ecumenical council. And so this is a major problem to this day in the Middle East, praying together with various heretical groups. And so the question is very relevant, relevant to our day and our church, the church today. Listen to what he says. He says, what do we do? Can we pray with them or not? He says, in their churches or even our own, or might one share a common table with them? In other words, go eat with them. Can we do that? Perform sponsorship at Holy Baptism. Can we, can we be sponsored at Holy Baptism? Perform memorial services for the departed or commune, even commune of the Holy Communion with them. So these are very relevant because unfortunately this is going on today in the Middle East. They're Orthodox who have succumbed to another, another, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's basically another gospel, another Christ, another church, another understanding of the church. Uh, that if they don't, they don't understand that probably, they're not really thinking about it very deeply, but these are the implications that have grave implications to our ecclesiology. For the errors, uh, difficulties create many such things, and I seek what one must do. Okay, so the questioner is saying, please help me understand what are the boundaries with regard to these particular heretics condemned. Those groups, in other words, the forefathers of these groups, they were uh, condemned to ecumenical council. Very serious, of course. And so the patriarch, the great canonist, says, do not give the holy things to the dogs, our Lord and God has said nor cast pearls before swine, okay? Now, just so people don't misunderstand our Lord, he doesn't call human beings dogs and swine, but he's saying that those that picture there, pearls before a pig and holy things before dogs, is a way to say 
The holy things are not given to those who can't and don't understand them and don't honor them. Okay, that's what the Lord is saying, obviously. Not calling his creation a swine and a dog, but that they don't understand, they don't they don't keep in great reverence and they don't understand, they cannot participate properly in the context of the church. So he says, that's how he begins by the words of, the, of our Lord. Indeed, he says, on this account, Canon 64 of the Holy Apostles, the heralds of God, also states, if any clergyman or layman might enter an assembly of the Jews or heretics to pray, let him be defrocked and excommunicated. So absolutely cannot go to an assembly of heretics or of Jews or whatever other religion, obviously, if they had Hindus or Muslims or, or Sindhus or whatever it might be the religion, obviously he would apply it to them as well. But that's who is around the Christians at the time. So that person, that clergyman or layman or layman who goes and prays in the temple of the heretic, he needs to be excommunicated. In other words, he needs to repent and, and for a time not take Holy Communion. If he doesn't repent, obviously he can't be admitted to Holy Communion. Canon 33 of the Council in Laodicea, but indeed also 6 and 34, states the following. Concerning not permitting heretics to enter the house of God while they remain in heresy, because one must not pray with a heretic or schismatic. That's the heretic or schismatic. A Christian must not abandon Christ's martyrs and depart for false martyrs. People talk about martyrs outside the church. They're talking about false martyrs here. I'm just telling you the canon. Don't shoot the messenger, right? This is what we have to deal with. If you want to follow the Holy Fathers, come to terms with what they teach. And this is certainly a part of the patristic heritage. Uh, namely, heretical ones are those that the aforementioned heretics produced, for these are estranged from God, he says. Therefore, let those departing to them be anathematized. You go over to them, you go and pray with them, you are anathematized. You're outside the church. That's what anath anathema, by the way, is not a curse upon other people. This is a misunderstanding of anathema. Anathema is a lifting up to God that you are no longer a part of the body. And that God, it's essentially a prayer that God would bring you to your senses. You know, we're talking about people who depart the church, right? And they anathematize those who refuse to listen to the church. That's the context of anathema. So we can go on and talk about different understandings and, and confusion today about anathema, but it's not really the topic. Indeed, on this account, we also decided that both clergy and lady are subject not only to excommunication and to frocking when they pray together in a church of orthodox or heretics, in other words, together with the heretics, or whenever they pray together as clergy or even share a meal together. Now, this is a pretty serious thing here, that even to the point of sharing a meal in those places. This is hundreds of years after the council, right? This is 12th century. Councils happened in the 5th century, 600 years, 600 more years later. They're still talking about the same way to deal with these various groups. Now, in the ecumenical movement, we have a totally different vision, okay? It's opposed to this. They don't, they don't believe any of this should be applied, and that we're all one in Christ and all the rest. So this is a total, totally opposed to the vision of the patriarch here and the canons. Or even share a meal together, but also shall be punished in a more severe way according to the provisions of the cited divine canon. So even he said it's even worse than this. Now listen to this, this last line. Very important because there are going to be people who say, no, 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 doesn't apply today. Doesn't apply. Listen now, he says. For the difficulties of areas and the increase of heretics, 
did not change the soundness of the Orthodox faith, right? So he's saying basically throughout this whole canon, it still applies, right? The, the increase of the heretics doesn't change the, the, the given about needing to be faithful and to maintain the soundness of the Orthodox faith. It doesn't change the nature of the problem. Doesn't, it doesn't change the need for therapy. It doesn't change the boundaries of the church. The fact that it, at three, a, a thousand or, or 2,000 years passed, it doesn't matter. 600 years had passed. Now, 1,500 years, 600 years have passed. Okay, but it's still the same problem. Now, they might not be, obviously, the same rights and same implications for the descendants of the heretics of those who are actually at the council. We understand that. And we're not sitting in judgment of them. We're saying the same parameters, the same problem exists, and it has to be dealt with in a similar way. You can't just ignore the therapy. This is therapy. The church, everything the church does is therapy. It's not punishment and condemnation. I know the terms say punish here, but just like you spank your child in order to heal him, or you discipline him, if you don't spank him, you still inflict some kind of pedagogical tool there to get correction. That's still got to happen today. You can't ignore it. If you do, you're walking away from the faith. Now, quickly, let's go through some contemporary saints about this topic. I'm sorry we're going very late tonight. I didn't expect it to go this late. Uh, I'm frankly surprised that I had so much material uh, able to present in such a short amount of time. Now, Father George Calcio, one of the great contemporary confessors of the faith in Romania, in the prisons, of the atheist prisons, Here's what he has to say about ecumenism, and he has much more to say. I'm just giving you one little taste, right? Now, we're talking about ecumenism as a dogmatic heresy, right? The overturning of the boundaries, the overturning of the nature of the church, the overturning of the need for repentance to come to the church, all the rest that we've implied and presented to, to, up to this point. There is a spirit unveiling in Europe, he says, in the world in general, a new age kind of spirit that frequently changes its appearance and speech striking the Christian world from all sides. Its image is generally gentle, its discourse attractive, but its intent, perfidious. The spirit can speak in beautiful words about family, but its intent is to annihilate it. It can speak on the church full of love for all, a sort of religious syncretism, but its urge is primarily to dispel orthodoxy. It can speak about nations and their homelands as something it tries to support, but its intent is to destroy both the church and the nations. This spirit is called ecumenism. All right, so one definition from one contemporary confessor of the faith. What is ecumenism? Father Seraphim Rose, talking about what we need to do within the contemporary ecumenical world that we live in. He says, orthodoxy has one thing to say to the ecumenical movement. Here is the truth. Join yourself to it. To remain to discuss, quote unquote, this truth not merely weakens the Orthodox witness, it destroys it. Very good and powerful and succinct words from Father Seraphim. He says the following to all of us to stay on guard lest we be deceived. He says, Orthodox Christians, hold fast to the grace which you have. Never let it become a matter of habit. Never measure it by merely human standards as they did and do in the ecumenical movement, and expect it to be logical or comprehensible to those who understand nothing higher than what is human, who think it to obtain the grace of the Holy Spirit in some other way than that which the one church of Christ has handed down to us. 
True orthodoxy by its very nature must seem totally out of place in these demonic times. That's the nature of the world we live in. Father, Father St. Eustine Popovich now. What is ecumenism? What is it dogmatically? What is it spiritually? What is this, this, this monster of a heresy which overturns the continuation of the incarnation and, and our life in Christ? He says, the great saint, like the holy apostles, the holy fathers and teachers of the church, confess the unity and uniqueness of the Orthodox Church with the divine wisdom of the cherubim and zeal of the seraphim. Understandable, therefore, is the fiery zeal which animated the Holy Fathers of the Church in all cases of division and falling away and the stern attitude toward heresies and schisms. So it's understandable. If you understand what's at stake. In that regard, the Holy Ecumenical and Holy Local Councils are preeminently important. According to their spirit and attitude, wise in those things pertaining to Christ, the Church is not only one, but also unique. Just the Lord cannot, uh, the Lord Christ cannot have several bodies, so he cannot have several churches. According to her theanthropic nature, the church is one and unique. Just as God, Christ the God-man is one and unique. And then he says the following, the famous words of this great saint and confessor of our day, Serbian theologian, higher monk, spiritual father, he says, ecumenism is a common name for the pseudo-Christianities and the pseudo-churches of Western Europe. Within it, is, with, within it is the heart of all European humanisms led by the papacy. All these pseudo-Christianities, all these pseudo-churches are nothing more than one heresy next to the other. Their common name is pan-heresy. I know for those who are not familiar with these bold words of the saint, this might seem really I don't know, maybe you're the first time you're hearing this, maybe you're a Protestant, a Roman Catholic, maybe you're new to the patristic mind. It sounds harsh. It sounds condemnatory. He's not actually condemning human beings per se, but teachings and stances and delusions, precisely like a doctor wants to get rid of the various illnesses and diseases and viruses from the body in order to save it. That's the way you should understand these powerful words from these great contemporary saints. Now, the great ascetic of Manathos, the great um, Saint Paisios, when he was writing to, to Patriarch Athenagoras, or an open letter back in the 60s, when Patriarch Athenagoras was going over uh, to the Pope and he was saying all kinds of unorthodox things about the church and he was embracing an uh, unrepentant uh, Pope who uh, wanted to essentially be recognized. Uh, so, he says about Patriarch Athenagoras that it appears he loved another modern woman. Talking about spiritual fornication, okay? Spiritual fornication means when you are not faithful to our Lord and the church and the mother, of, uh, which is the church, you're not faithful, you're not presenting the faithfully the witness, you are falling into a kind of fornication, spiritual fornication. That's what a lot of what ecumenism is doing. It's bringing people into spiritual uh, uh, uncleanliness. The great one, one of the quotes I should have presented tonight, which I neglected, I'll tell you verbally from the great elder of Katonakia, Ephrem. And he says, regarding, he prayed, as somebody asked him, What is ecumenism? And he prayed and he says, Ecumenism is filled with the demonic energy. It's a filthy demonic sickness, okay, because it's filled with half truths and lies about the body of Christ. And so he says here, the unfortunate Athenagoras who left his 
uh, first love and in the name of love trampled upon the cross of Christ and the preaching of the crucified one. It appears he loved another modern woman, he says, which is called the Papist Church, because our Orthodox mother has not made an impression on him at all, for she is so modest. This love, which was heard from Constantinople, caused a sensational impression of sorts among many Orthodox, who nowadays live in an environment of such meaningless love in cities across the entire world. In other words, he's saying we're getting infected by this fake, false, superficial, fleshly love, and which is an enemy to truth, and therefore is not true love at all. It's not sacrificial, it's not crucified, right? Moreover, this love is of the spirit of our age, this fake love. The family will lose its divine meaning from just such kinds of love, which have, not, have as their aim the breakup and not the union. All right, very prophetic and good words. He also says, follow me. What is ecumenism? Well, it's one of the devil's tentacles, he says. The devil spread three tentacles to capture the world. The rich to catch them with masonry and secret societies, let's say. The poor with communism and the religious with ecumenism. So he says it's one of the three main tentacles of the, de of the demons to catch man in falsehood and lies and, and direct him toward this life and this world and not to heaven and not to uh, the truth, way, and life of the gospel. Now, another question that's going to be coming up and it's addressed in ecumenism and is a major problem today. There are increasingly orthodox clergymen and theologians who are supposing that they can speak of apostolic succession existing among the heterodox and the Eucharist existing among the heterodox, which, as we've said before, is impossible because the orthodox faith is presupposed. On the day of Pentecost, they were of one mind in one place. They have the orthodox faith and the Eucharistic assembly. Those things are inseparable. So no one can talk about the apostles, the Eucharist, the faith, and the church. In other words, Apostolic succession the Eucharist cannot be spoken of outside of the one faith. So the question is, do papal Protestants and anti-Chalcedonians, the various descendants of the those who rejected the Fourth Ecumenical Council, called for the longest time Monophysites, today they don't want that to be called that, which is, I guess, a good thing. But that's what they the, those descendants of and, and adherence to Dioscorus and Severius and these various um, uh, clerics who were defrocked and anathematized at the councils, the Fourth Ecumenical Council, uh, they uh, historically always referred to as Monophysites. They have supposedly, by these people claim, apostolic succession and a valid Eucharist because, it, as it's supposed, they have maintained a sacramental structure and a hierarchical structure and a basic theology. And even the Seven Ecumenical Councils, which is, I don't know what, they, how could they possibly claim that, but anyway, um, they have all these things in common, supposedly. Someone said that he believes that these heterodox can be received by a simple confession of faith into the church. Well, the question of reception is a different issue, uh, uh, but we'll talk about that. But but let's start with apostolic succession. It is impossible to talk about apostolic succession in the orthodox manner, I don't know if understanding of apostolic succession, 
apart from the apostolic faith. What's passed on is not simply a laying out of hands as if in a legalistic manner, and that's what goes on in the West. People think very naively that if you just do the actions like the, the papal legalist scholastics somehow thought that this is some kind of magical you know, legalistic thing you pass on without having the faith, like they said, you could be a, an atheist or a Jew and baptize, which is absurd. But they, they believe that. They have canons that defend that. Same thing about apostolic succession. You can just pass it on mechanically, magically, without confession of the one faith and the revelation of Jesus Christ to his apostles. That's impossible. So, first of all, apostolic succession is impossible outside of the apostolic faith or the orthodox faith. The Eucharist is the church. The church is the, is the Eucharist. These things are... Synonymous, they're, 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 it's impossible to talk about the Eucharist outside the context of all the mysteries. So the minute you say that the Eucharist is there, everything is there. And therefore, there's one church. And therefore, we, we have a church that's total, totally opposed and in confusion. It's been divided for centuries and centuries. And right now, we're gravely sinning because we, have, we, we, we refuse to commune with one another. I mean, the the... The implications of these ideas are really, at the end of the day, they become absurd. And, of course, no church father ever taught any such thing. No church father, no saint. St. Paisios, who we just quoted, never. And rejected the idea that there was one church and they all just, the Orthodox and the Monophysites and the Antitelos and the Orthodox. The saints don't teach this. We don't have any saints today who ever said such a thing. So this idea that the Eucharist is there of course, means the church is there, but that's not what the church has ever understood. It doesn't confess. We don't have an ecumenical council to confess that. The opposite has been taught. Have those who do not know, live, and uniformly confess in word and deed theosis retain basic theology? The idea is that there's a basic theology, the basic theology. What does that mean? Basic, is there like advanced theology and basic theology? It's one seamless garment. I don't know what that could mean. So if you doubt or do not confess and live and promote theosis as salvation, which is what the church fathers have always taught, God became man, that man might become God. They, the whole of the Philokalia and Hesychastic tradition is all about this as salvation. That's not the case among the cops and the various anti-Alcedonians. It's not the case among the papists. Of course, some in those confessions believe that there is such a thing as theosis, but the general... Nine, you know, the vast majority and the and the core of their spiritual life does not admit that, does not uh, teach and preach that, does not cultivate that, and has not. So that is a sign that, of course, the theology and the teaching of the ecumenical councils is not present in those confessions. And Father John Romanides and others have said that very clearly. Finally, the criteria for the reception of the heterodox is not based on theological proximity. To orthodoxy. So this idea that, well, they're really close to us, and therefore we do confession of faith, is wrong. That's not the patristic teaching. That's not what St. Nicodemus says in his Pedalion. It's not what St. Basil said. Nobody, you cannot come to that conclusion because you have Arians received in a way that uh, really, I mean, Arians should have been baptized if, if that's the way we think about heresy because it's a grievous, gross heresy. But that's not what happens. Some are baptized. Some are chrismated in the ancient church. The vast majority of them are baptized, by the way. Uh, and Canon 95, actually, as we will see in a minute, points to baptism, not the confession of faith for the Monophysites. Uh, and we'll explain why that's the case in a minute. But 
economia is possible, of course. It's always possible to be for the church to do economia. Nobody denies that. But on what basis and what presupposition? And what do the actual uh, church fathers say? Uh, quickly, uh, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but Canon 95 of Trullo, properly understood and translated, speaks about baptism for the Nestorians and the, the disciples of Ftikius, Dioscoros, and Severus. It is, that's, that's what's properly understood when you read the canon. That's what is even confessed and read by Amica Alivizatos, who was a pretty active ecumenist of the ecumenical patriarchate. That's his reading of this canon as well. Uh, so these heresies are also be treated as Greeks and baptized. This, this is according to Father John Patrick Ramsey, a cleric and scholar from England in the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. He did a very interesting piece. You can find it in academia. I've got, your, I've got the source here. Go and read it and see the proper understanding of 95. Uh, the version in the, in the, in the Patriologia Greca, along with the commentary of Theodore Balsaman, puts a full stop at the end of this sentence after similar heresies. In other words, it is proper to see, stop, and then it is necessary to make documents and to anathematize their heresy. In other words, they continue in the same vein as the previously referred, uh, referenced heretics who were to be baptized. So actually the canon explicitly says that they should be baptized, according to the reading of uh, Father John, Amica Alivizatos, Theodore Balsaman, uh, and the grammar uh, and the proper understanding and translation of the canon. Now, this is, for some, this is going to be revolutionary because they have been told again and again and again, no, 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 the canon says that they should be received by a simple confession of faith, uh, and that's not what the canon says. But I know there are people who say that that's not true, but that's, uh, I think there's a very good case for it. Now, interestingly, if we put things in historical context, about the same time that Balsamon is writing, uh, and, and now we've got um, 600 years after uh, the councils uh, for um, uh, dealing with the Monophysites, you have a canon in a Georgian council, canon 15, in 1103 AD. The Georgians uh, have a council, and they talk about how to receive converts from the Armenians. The Armenians, of course, were not in communion with the Orthodox. They had, they had rejected the Fourth Ecumenical Council, and they tragically embraced uh, the theology of the Monophysites and, the, and other uh, problematic theology. Listen to what this canon says, and it is totally in agreement with this reading of Canon 95, we just quoted, and Balsamon uh, regarding the various Eastern uh, groups that have been uh, anathematized, the Nestorians and the Jacobites. Those of the Armenian heretics, adherents of the Kashetsal formula, who convert to the right, I don't know what that is actually, I think it has to do with their teachings, uh, who convert to the right and pure faith and wish to join the Holy and Catholic Church and condemn the abominable heresy of one nature, the Monophysites, the, the heresy of Monophysitism, which proclaims in its ignorance that Christ, our true God, has one will and one operation, being a union of mingled human and divine natures, and therefore neither divine nor human, but something mingled and strange. For them we declare to be baptized in full, like pagans. For this is the way great churches, such as the Antiochian Patriarchate, Balsaman, and other Eastern churches accept them. All right, this is a very important historical witness, again, to the proper reading of Canon 95, 
If Canaanite 5 was talking about reception by confession of faith, Trullo, they would have known that. Antioch would have known that. This canon wouldn't have said they should be baptized according to the great churches in the East. So a proper reading of Canaanite 5, what the Antiochian church was doing under Bosman, and uh, now you have the Georgian church, of course, not a lot of politics involved here. This is pretty straightforward. They don't have anything. They're high. There's no reason for them to, to do, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, super uh, zealotry on their part. This is just the way that they had been passed down to them. Uh, I'm gonna Because of time, I'm not going to read this, but I highly recommend you go online if you're interested in this topic. You want to go fuller. Read a very important document issued, I think it was in 2008, called A Confession of Faith Against Ecumenism, A Confession of Faith against ecumenism. There were about eight or nine bishops who signed it. I think it was 12,000 people signed it at the time. Hundreds of clergy from different Orthodox churches. Uh, it's uh, it's online uh, at the jordanville.org files articles slash a confession of faith PDF, right? You can go read that. Very important document signed by many prominent confessors of the faith in Greece at the time, Father Theodore Zizis, Father Jordan Vitalinos, and many others. So I'm not going to read it right here, but he clearly is clearly supporting everything we've talked about tonight, obviously, and that, um, you know, uh, it's a very, very grave matter that every Orthodox Christian has to be uh, engaged in and confess the faith uh, in belief in the one church, the one holy Catholic apostolic church. Now, all of this that we've talked about tonight is not an end in itself. It's not going to end with a compromise simply between uh, the Orthodox and some heterodox, but it is it is already developed far beyond the realm of inter-Christian ecumenism, and now we're in pan-religious ecumenism, and there's probably a whole other talk we could give just on what's happening in this sphere. But I will end, as I did a couple weeks ago, again, with this famous quote and this very important interpretation of the Book of Revelation by Elder Athanasius Dineos, who tells us that this grave temptation of ecumenism is leading us to a, an acceptance. In other words, the, the various heretical groups in, among uh, the ecumenists are going to embrace and accept the idea that there are many paths up the mountain, there are many religions that will save, and, and, and there will be a persecution of those who refuse to accept this idea. And he says, this great and grave temptation is the last temptation of history. Quote, and this unity, this unity, in other words, false unity among the various religions, will be experienced as a grave temptation, which will visit the church worldwide. For it will obscure, in order to set aside, again, it will obscure, in order to set aside, the theanthropic person of Jesus Christ and his body, the church. Both the person and the body it will set aside. It'll obscure. It's already happened. It's been happening for a hundred years. This will be the last temptation of history. It has been prophesied by Christ himself in the book of Revelation. He says, thou hast kept the word of my patience. Talking to the angel, the bishop. I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Right? So what is this? grave temptation that will be universal, that try everyone on the face of the earth. Elder Athanasius tells us, because this temptation will affect the entire world, it will be the great adulteration of faith. 
in the theanthropic person of Jesus Christ. This is what it's all about, brothers and sisters. It's all about leading to a obscuring of the person of Christ because he is the one who saves. It's through him that we are saved. Everything we talked about tonight, from the distortion of economy and akrivia to the distortion of where a baptism is, where the mysteries are, uh, the whole uh, question of uh, the nature of the unity of the church, the nature of the church, everything we talked about is leading humanity toward an obscuring, a distortion of the person of Christ, and therefore a cutting off of humanity from salvation in Jesus Christ in the body uh, of Christ, his church. And this is where we have to be so much on guard and why this topic is extremely important for all of us. We have to be sensitized. We have to read. We have to be cognizant of what the church fathers have taught. And we have to help others so that they do not fall into this grave temptation, which is coming upon the face of the earth. And they, they escape and they maintain their faith in the person of Jesus Christ and in his church. And with that, I've gone over my time quite a bit. I'm sorry. I'm glad that you're being patient. You stayed with me. And hopefully this has been very, very um, beneficial, very, uh, very much uh, a building up of your uh, uh, Orthodox antibodies, your Christian antibodies against the various delusions and heresies that we're facing today. Uh, I should say also, just in closing, we can add, open up the questions, John, and maybe you, you've been collecting them. I don't know, but uh, I've got a few questions. If you want to ask questions, if you're in uh, Facebook or or um, uh, in um, YouTube, you can submit it there. John Kaufman there is ready to receive the questions. Put it. Put a maybe a all caps question and then ask your question. Uh, somebody just asked John. Uh, Limited hangout has a question here, so put those over there in my list, and we'll get to them ASAP. Uh, but I should say that, you know, for all of those who have difficulty grasping the ecclesiology, I know in, sometimes some of those things are very kind of complex for us. Don't worry about it. Uh, but and for those who object and don't agree with what's been presented tonight, consider the fact today that every everyone who desires to follow Christ, for the most part, who are trying to be faithful, they understand the grave uh, attack upon the institution of marriage, uh, or the uh, just the person, the, the 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 genders and the, the the nature of men and women today, the grave attack on on this uh, this mystery uh, of uh, of union in Christ in marriage. Everyone should understand that, and yet this this is just another. This is a a, a on the level of the the moral and the social. This is exactly what's taking place in terms of ecumenism. It's an attack on the family of God. It's an attack on the nature of the union with Christ. It's an attack in to do away with the mystery of the union of God and man in the church, just like they're attacking the union of God, of man and wife, man and woman in the mystery of marriage. Same demonic machinations behind both to bring an end to our identity in Christ. Uh, the fact that people don't even know quite what they are, whether they boy, girl, man, woman, is indicative of a long history of not knowing who they are in Christ, not knowing what it, what it means to be in Christ, not knowing who Christ is and what, who is, what his body is and where his body is, which is where we achieve self-knowledge and we achieve 
God knowledge when we come into communion with God. So uh, hopefully that very simple example will help you as well. Uh, you know, humanism in the name of, of love has, has promised much, but when you mix in with the truth, the pure water, even just a little bit of poison, a little bit of, of manure, of course, makes the whole source, the whole well, it, it, it contaminates all of it. And this is what these lies about the person of Christ and the body of Christ, uh, you know, in the name of love, we're going to unite. But in fact, it's not a true unity. And so it's not true love. And so these lies end up uh, uh, undoing any kind of union, true union in Christ. Oh